This weekend in the liturgical calendar is the celebration of the Feast of Corpus Christi. All around the world, Catholics will be processing in the streets, carrying the cross of Christ, honoring his sacrifice for our sins and salvation. But in our country, where few people anymore learn or speak Latin, far too many people haven't a clue what Corpus Christi means. Even people living in the city of this name are as oblivious to its meaning as many people living in San Francisco or Los Angeles. I've even heard people pronounce it Corpus Crispy. So what truth from Scripture does this feast commemorate? Well, this is what we'll discuss today on Deep in Scripture. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. I'm Marcus Grodi, your host, joined by my co-host, Dr. Kenneth Howell, and uh, he joins me via the great uh, uh, media world that we live in. He's coming from Illinois, and I'm here at the studios at the Coming Home Network in Ohio, and Ken, it's good to have you with us. I know good you had, here, had a bit of a, a break, and, and that's good, a little bit of a vacation, and it's good to have you back. And, and uh, for those of you listening, thank you for joining us. Uh, you can go to www.deepinscripture.com to find out more about this program and archived episodes. You can send us an email at dis at chnetwork.org. And also be sure to subscribe to the CH Network Facebook page or to Twitter at CH Network. And we'd love to uh, um, uh, hear from you. And Ken, I told you that I didn't tell you, in fact, I'm surprising you uh, about emails because I wanted us to use an email, but I got a funny email from somebody. I thought I'd throw you at, throw this at <laughs> you. Uh, it comes from a, a guy named Cad. I don't know if that's his real name or, um, <laughs> and uh, the email's sitting on my office. I forgot to bring it down, but I wanted to throw this to you because he, like me, is a gardener. And he was, he said he was weeding his gardens and uh, thinking about scripture all right and mm -hmm. and he remembered that scripture text where jesus is told by his apostles that um you know the farmer went out and planted his field and then someone had come in in the night and, and had planted weeds mm -hmm. and so the weeds had grown up with the good stuff and so the disciples are saying well do we pull out all the weeds and Jesus said, no, you leave the weeds till the end, to the great judgment, and then mm -hmm. the wheat and the tear will be divided, the good from the bad. And, my, and the, the emailer was saying, now, what do Sola Scriptura people do with that verse? I mean, if they got gardens, do they do any weeding? Because Jesus, <laughs> who invented gardening, he created everything, should know the best way to garden and he's basically saying by scripture, don't do any weeding, leave it there until the end. Mm. Now I know from gardening, you can't do that. I'm out every <laughs> single night weeding. Last oh, year yeah. I didn't weed and by the end of the year we were you know, pushing through Swamped. a swamp <laughs> of vines just to find the least piece of zucchini that the rabbits had left. But Scripture alone would look at that passage and say, Jesus is saying, therefore, that we shouldn't be weeding our gardens. What's your thought, <laughs> scholar? <laughs> <laughs> it certainly is a unique email, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, uh, no, I, uh, I completely agree. Following uh, Soul of Scripture, one should never, one is forbidden by God to, to 
Weed runs garden. <laughs> oh, oh boy, that's many a farmer would would be oh, yeah. either glad or think you're crazy. But yeah, exactly, exactly. No, um, our good our good Protestant friends, of course, wouldn't wouldn't take it in that way, and that's because they know there's a spiritual truth being taught here, and, and uh, so they uh, what they um, in fact the first person at least that I'm aware of that really gave a a clear explanation for this was Saint Augustine in his commentary on this passage in Mark and Matthew chapter 13 on that, on that parable in which he says that we do have to exercise the bishops of the church have to exercise discipline over the people to keep them from severe scandal. That is, let's say a politician who openly promotes um, that which is contrary to truth and, and goodness and beauty, that which is contrary to what the church teaches. Um, but, we should not be in the weeding business in the church. That is to say, judging every person as to whether they're a true Christian or a true Catholic. That's not our place to do this. It's not even the place of a priest or a bishop to do that, uh, because only God knows knows the heart. But uh, yeah, he says, I'll leave the guard. I'll leave the guarding in those who know better. So. <laughs> well, Jesus talks about fruit. Again, he uses a garden analogy. It's by their mm, fruit yep. that you will know them. And we right, right. Um, we always have to be danger of the sin of, of uh, projection, uh, because we no one knows in this world what any other person thinks. We don't have that yes. ability. Nobody That's knows. The, the best counselor, the best confessor, does not know what another person thinks. Yeah. Uh, we think mm-hmm. we do. We might think I have. I, I think I'm pretty good at guessing what people are thinking. We haven't a clue, and maybe mm-hmm. the person we don't know. The mo- is our spouse. You know, we think we know our wife. No, we don't yeah, know what each yeah. other. We don't even know what we we ourselves think half the time. So to <laughs> think we know what some. So the danger of that of judging somebody else is that we might project onto them what we think we would be thinking if we were doing what they were doing. Yeah, why you know why true, is that yeah. idiot doing that? Well, if I were doing that, I wouldn't. I must be doing something. So, so we get caught up in that. So we don't. We can't yeah. judge because we can't know. However, with mm. people's fruits, Paul once kicked a guy out of the Corinthian church because yeah, of what he right. was doing. He wasn't guessing right. what his reasons were, but because of what he was doing was causing a scandal. So there are authorities mm. in the church that have that responsibility to do some weeding based on the actions that we do. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. I was yeah. out this morning uh, uh, weeding my... Um, plants and i can tell by the leaves which are weeds and which are fruit which are good and so if it ain't looking like the potatoes it's gone (laughs) i'm i'm weeding through my plants based on what they do what they look like i can guess whether they should be there or not but as you said the that's why the church gave us authority of the church our lord gave us the church that has that responsibility for the protecting mm-hmm. of the flock. And if shepherds mm-hmm. aren't doing that, they're being bad shepherds. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the thing the church always makes clear is that we're not judging your inner heart. We don't know that. We're not saying before God. All we're saying is that your behavior is inconsistent with your profession. And, of course, even there, the church is you know, seems like infinitely patient with people. Uh, yeah, a lot of people, a lot of Catholics think that some of these politicians should have been excommunicated a long time ago. Um, 
But the church is patient with them. However, there does come a point in which, you know, they say, no more, you have to, you have to, if you profess to be a Catholic, this is the way you must live, right? Yeah. And the way you're living is inconsistent with that. So the church has to make those pronouncements. You know, I, I know we, we want to get under other topic, but there's one more thing, you know, that sometimes we ourselves, how we spend our money and where we spend our time, we have to be selective. And mm, right. in our right. world, when we're investing our money or purchasing products or, or going to a service, uh, we are concerned, well, our, is that money going to be used in improper ways? So how do I know if I'm investing my money in a company that's also using that money to invest in immoral practices? Mm -hmm, right. And in the world that we live in, Ken, it's almost impossible to divest ourselves from connections with this thing. I mean, you and I are looking mm -hmm. at each other now yeah. through a computer and the computer companies and the software companies and the electrical companies and all these things are interwoven with other companies that are doing immoral things. We know that to be true. So mm -hmm. what do we do? Do we go out and live in the woods and don't have anything? It's tough. But the distinction in my mind is if a company goes public in a taking a stand on an immoral issue as mm -hmm. if it's their their values mm -hmm. and they make it public that the use of our money will be for an immoral purpose that's when we are responsible to do some weeding in where mm -hmm. we will invest our money or our time that's a good thought yeah definitely I mean it's a that's a tough call but uh, but um, I tend to agree with you there's a there comes a point at which we have to disassociate ourselves. Yeah, you know, I'd, there are certain restaurants I love, but if they are publicly saying that they are using their money to promote abortion and contraception, then I'm not going to eat there anymore. And, and yeah. that's a choice yeah. we make. Yeah, and we don't make a judgment on a, a particular company, but we. No, but no, but no. yet, if they want to be public. It's just like you or I. If we publicly say something, we need to take responsibility for what we say That's publicly. True. And uh, so we need to be careful with what we say because we are to honor Christ. All right. All that being said, thanks for the email. We'd look for more uh, emails. Uh, the topic today, given that this weekend will be the weekend of Corpus Crispy, as some have said. <laughs> <laughs> it's not Corpus Crispy. It's Corpus Christi. Ken, why don't we talk about that? Because uh, there are a lot of people, giving our background, that really don't understand what this weekend is all about and what Catholics are doing walking around carrying the crucifix. Uh, mm -hmm. And maybe there are a few Catholics that really don't appreciate it either. Well, the, the Corpus Christi, of course, the word means the body of Christ. And the celebration goes back to the 13th century. Um, it was instituted as a universal celebration for the whole church, by Pope Urban IV. And there's a very interesting background going back into uh, Belgium, or what is today Belgium and Liège. Uh, Blessed Juliana began to have visions uh, when she was about 18 years old about the body and blood of Christ, about the Eucharist. And she shared these with the man who was the archdeacon of, of Campine at the time. His name was Jacques Pantaleon. And he um, was instrumental in establishing a feast in honor of the body and blood of Christ in the 1240s of uh, 
in just in, in Belgium in that diocese. But then through God's providence, this same man uh, in 1261 became the new pope. And when he became the new pope, of course, he was familiar because he's the one that had been instrumental in having this feast celebrated just in Belgium. And uh, perhaps we don't really know, but he perhaps he was thinking about making it a universal feast. And then something very unusual happened. There was a German priest who was traveling through Italy in the year, I think it was 1265, uh, maybe it was 1263. And um, he stopped in Balsena, Italy, which is north of Rome, south of Florence, in Balsena, and he did celebrate Mass. And when he did, uh, when he was celebrating Mass, the host began to bleed. And as it began to bleed, the blood went onto the corporal, the, the cloth, that the, the Mass that, that's on the altar there. And that, that cloth, by the way, is still there in, on Orvieto, just down the road from Balsena, uh, today in Italy and can be seen by all of the faithful. But this moved and motivated Urban IV in 1264 to issue a papal bull which instituted the feast of Corpus Christi, and we've had it ever since. And uh, there's a long and wonderful and glorious history having a, to do a lot with different culture because uh, in, let's say, in the first part of the 20th century, um, this day... Uh, Corpus Christi, which is actually Thursday, it's not Sunday, it's actually Thursday. Um, it was it was a it was an official holiday in many uh, countries in Europe, and still is in Austria today, which is a largely Catholic country. So um, it's a wonderful celebration, a reminder of what God has done in Christ in the Eucharist, and um, we should also mention that. The famous poem, Pange Lingue, Sing, O Glorious Tongue of the Savior, uh, was composed by St. Thomas Aquinas. He was commissioned by the Pope to do that, uh, to do that whole office, that whole prayer for the church uh, about Corpus Christi. And it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful um, daily office that's there in the, in the prayer book. So, uh, yeah, it's a wonderful celebration. It's something I think really that Catholics need to revive. We need to have more Eucharistic celebrations like they do, let's say, in Spain and other places um, so that people will be, will be able to see what, what it is that we believe as Catholics who believe in the true body and blood of Christ in the Eucharist. I would guess that part of the reason it has had its struggles over the years here in America is because of our history in America— um, not mm-hmm. so much French Canada or Spanish Florida or, or Mexico, but in 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 the United States, where it was mainly uh, Puritan or Episcopal colonies. The thirteen colonies were mostly either the Northern Puritan colonies yeah. or the Southern, which That's were mainly true. Anglican colonies, um, and which all had the penal laws. The anti-Catholic penal laws all the way up through the end of the American Revolution. And then when John Carroll became the first bishop with the 30,000 Catholics in a company, a country of six, 3 million people dispersed, that from the very beginning the emphasis was on helping these Catholics become citizens of America, that 
the living out of their devotions in a mostly non-Catholic culture has always been, for the last 200-plus years, a struggle to help our neighbors understand the significance and the history and the centrality of Catholic devotions, especially this one, which centers on our Lord Jesus and his sacrifice Mm -hmm. on the cross and his giving of his body and blood for our nourishment. It is such central not only to our faith, but to Scripture, but it's been an upward battle ever since uh, the, the founding of this country. It, it has been, yeah. And this is, and yet, uh, it's funny you should say that because, uh, you know, America has culturally been a very Protestant country. And you and I grew up as Protestants, so I think right. we understand in, in the ways in which we mentally participated in that. Um, and it has been difficult for Catholics in the United States. However, uh, we seem to be at a very opportune moment uh, at this point in our history. And I think it's primarily because the rapid and uh, I would call it real deterioration of Christian values, the rapid deterioration of Christian values that's taken place in the last 40 to 50 years is actually given Catholics a very um, uh, an opportune moment to share the fullness of the Christian faith with people. And I think that's so important because, in fact, I read just the other day uh, that in the Diocese of Knoxville, Tennessee, which is, of course, right there in the Bible Belt of the South, um, there's tremendous growth going on in the Catholic Diocese of Knoxville because people are finally beginning to open up and see the beauty of the Catholic faith. And they're coming to it. Well, walking in procession with the crucifix of our Lord is a way of, of, on the one hand, celebrating and honoring his sacrifice for us on mm-hmm. the cross, giving his body and his blood for our life, eternal life. But it's also a, a means of our, the expression of our unity with his sacrifice, of mm-hmm. taking a stand for his sacrifice, even in the midst of a culture that is becoming less and less open to the Christian life and Christian values. So it's being a witness, and that word witness, of course, is martyr. Uh, uh, Recently on the news, I I saw uh, a story about a man who went into a bar, and he was kicked out of the bar because his, his cross that he was wearing around his neck was outside of his shirt. And the, right? the bar claimed that it was a, a, a gang symbol. And so he had to, <laughs> either had to put it inside his shirt or leave. And the man says, well, if it's a gang symbol, then it's a gang I want to be a part of. <laughs> and, and, you yeah, know, I, I don't know where that guy or where he's coming from or where his faith, but that idea of the cross of Christ his that we walk in procession with as the symbol of the gang we've become a part of is exactly what, as you said, Ken, is what's needed to this day. We're at a ripe hour of taking a stand for our faith in a culture that seems to be moving away from, is ignorant of, is rejecting of the very values of our Christian faith. And we need to find ways to express our faith openly because we're trying, people are trying to suppress it. It's not just Christian, it's not just Catholicism. They're trying to impress it. Right. Uh, to repress any f- expression of Christian faith. Well, we're going today uh, in this looking at the meaning of Corpus 
Christie um, draws us to chapter 6 of John, and it particularly draws us to verses 53 through 58, which are the passages where Jesus says very boldly about the necessity of eating his body and drinking his blood. He says it five or six times very clearly. Ken, I've got in my house a uh, a tall file cabinet of all my old sermon notes from the 10 years that I was a pastor and the years that I was a youth minister of all the sermons I preached. And frankly, I couldn't find one sermon that I ever preached on Jan chapter 6, John chapter 6 in these verses. I don't know that I avoided them. I just didn't know what to do with them. But we're going to look at those. And uh, what I'd like to say is that um, these particular verses, 53 through 58, to get their full significance, must be seen in the context of the entire chapter of John chapter 6. Um, and when I was a, a Presbyterian pastor, I looked at John chapter 6 about, it seemed to me that the main issue of John 6 was about believing in Jesus or not, that the will of the Father is to believe in him, and if you believe in him, you'll have eternal life, and that seemed to be the emphasis. But over the years, and particularly through my developing as a Catholic and understanding the fullness of the faith, it seems that the context of John chapter 6, the overall, which we can't read on scripture, on the radio now, but the overall goal, purpose of John chapter 6, verses 1 through 71, in its place of the entire gospel of John, is we see Jesus becoming well-known and followed by many folk as a result of the signs that he has been doing and they're curious and they're drawn. Is he going to be this military leader? Is he going to be our Messiah in the sense of a political a leader? Um, or are people drawn to him for private, selfish reasons because he can feed them, uh, he can heal them, all these reasons. And so at the beginning of John chapter 6, we have this huge multitude that have gathered around Christ to hear him. And by the end of chapter 6, it's down really to one person, Simon Peter. And we it's this winnowing down of the audience from first the multitude, verses 1 through 40 is all about our Lord having an interaction with this multitude of Jews that are following him because he had fed them. And, but at the end of that, you, you don't ever hear of the multitude again in chapter 6. It's windled down to the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes of verses 41 through 40, 59, who have an argument with Jesus about Jesus claiming to be the bread of life. And at the, But at the end of verse 59, you no longer hear about the Jewish leaders. They've walked away. And it's down mm-hmm. to the disciples of Jesus in verses 6 through 66. And they're having a problem with what Jesus is saying because they know he isn't speaking in metaphors and symbols. He's speaking literally about his body and blood. And in verse 66, we see them themselves finding his words so hard that they have to leave. And so the crowd has been winnowed down to the 12. And verse 67 is the only mention of the 12. And they don't utter a word because it's winnowed down even more to verse 68 and 69, where the only person that says a word to Jesus in response 
is Simon Peter. And he says, Jesus, where else can we go? Because we've come yeah. to believe and to know that you yeah. are, are the Son of God. And yeah. then it would be great if it ended there, but sadly there are two more verses, and we see it windowed down even more, unfortunately, to Judas. And so we see in the end, the last person mentioned in John chapter 6 is the one person that supremely could not take Jesus at his word. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. You know, that's a that's a, a, a great trajectory that you have taken us through in looking at this chapter from the point of view of um, of the winnowing down that's going on. Because we have to remember the total context of this gospel. And the more that I've read in the gospel of John, it, it, one scholar, I think, used the term, or one, one maybe church father, the gospel of John is like a, a puddle that a child can wade in. It's so simple, but it's also like a ocean that an elephant can swim in. It's so profound. And one of the things that's profound about it is because you remember that in chapter 21, he's leading this whole, uh, this whole book is leading up to the profession or, or the reason. He tells us the reason why he's written the book. He tells us that the book was written in order that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is actually in, uh, in um, chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Uh, John says other things, uh, there are many other signs that Jesus did in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these things have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. Now, when you just talked about this winnowing down of, of the audience, um, it's clear that what's happening is G John is trying to teach us what the nature of true faith is. He wants us to believe. Well, what is real faith? It really requires a commitment and a sacrifice. All right, Ken, thanks. We'll pick up right from there when we come back in a moment and uh, show how the whole context is his claim to be the bread of life and then how he gives us the Eucharist to continue to feed us with this divine uh, indwelling of our Lord. We'll be back in just a moment. Dr. Kenneth Howell has two wonderful books on the early church fathers, translations from the Greek as well as commentaries. His first book is on Ignatius of Antioch and Polycarp of Smyrna. They were two of the greatest leaders of Christianity in the first half of the second century. The second book is on the letter to the Corinthians by Clement of Rome and the Didache. These were two of the most important documents from the earliest days of the church. For Christians today, these earliest writings harken back to a time when the unity of faith and morals was a cherished gift and goal among professing believers. No Christian can remain unchallenged and unchanged while reading and absorbing these writings. If you are interested in these books by Dr. Kenneth Howell or purchasing them, go to the store link at chnetwork.org. Thank you. Next time on The Journey Home. Join Marcus as he welcomes revert to Catholicism Mike Aquilina to the show. 
see what led him home, back to the Catholic Church. That's on the next Journey Home, only on EWTN. The Journey Home is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. We are a network of inquirers, converts, as well as lifelong Catholics helping one another grow closer to Jesus Christ. On our website, you'll find conversion stories, articles, and videos, as well as information about becoming a member and receiving our CH newsletter. Visit chnetwork.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is uh, Marcus Grodi and Dr. Kenneth Howell. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we're looking at John chapter 6 uh, in the context of Corpus Christi uh, and the body of Christ. And uh, we, in the first part of the program, a bit of an overview of the chapter showing how uh, John is uh, demonstrating that that both in the sense of the people following Christ, but also within our very soul, within ourselves, there needs to be this winnowing down of a journey to Christ. It happened, he uses the, the description of the people from the multitude to the leaders, to the disciples, to the 12, to Peter. And at the end, you've got Peter and Judas, and which one are we gonna be? And uh, within ourselves, we have all the voices in our lives of all the opinions out there. And there's a winnowing down in following Jesus. And in that sense, the words of Peter are the same words that we utter yes. in obedience to the call of Christ with all the other voices out there. And in a sense, Ken, in in terms of this very topic we're looking at, which is the interpretation of verses 53 through 58 in, in light of the Eucharist, the body of Christ, we have this winnowing down of do we accept Christ at his word well, that's with all the so opinions around us. Well, that was what was, and it wasn't just, it isn't just difficult for people today. It's difficult. It was difficult for people then. You know, as you walk, as you previously walked through that, again, that chapter and showed us that trajectory of the winnowing down that's going on, there's another way in which that's reinforced. If you look, for example, at, <clears throat> at verse 41, we're, we're almost to the end of the bread of life discourse. Now, this is the discourse where Jesus picks up on the miracle. The miracle he performed was the feeding of the 5,000. And the question is... What was the meaning of the miracle? Now, the reason, the word that John uses for um, the meaning of a miracle is a sign, a semeon. And remember that text I read before the break from John chapter 20? There were other signs which Jesus did that are not written in this book. But he did, but he chose these signs to record these signs because they have a meaning. Well, what's the meaning of the feeding of the 5,000 that begins John chapter 6? It's that Jesus is the bread of life. However, it's possible that someone could have taken that as sort of a vague literary metaphor 
and didn't really understand what was being said. And you see that reflected in verse 41. It says there that the Jews, it means, as you rightly pointed out, the leaders of the Jews, the leaders of the Jews were grumbling about him because he said that he was the one who came down from heaven. And notice their objection in verse 42. They said, isn't this Joseph? I mean, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph? By the way, Jesus, which is Joshua, was a very common name among Jews. Yeshua was a very common name, so that wasn't anything unusual. So we know him. He's Joseph's son, right? We know his father. We know his mother. I mean, how in the world can this guy say that he came down from heaven? And Jesus turns on, turns the screws even tighter. And he says, in essence, in verses 43 down to verse 51, he talks again about him being the bread of life. Like in verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the bread in the wilderness. They died. But, but the one who eats this bread will live forever. He'll not die. Now, I think that the, the real punchline of this chapter is in verse 51. Because up to verse 51, you really don't know what the bread of life is. Notice what it says. I am the bread of life. I'm the living bread that's come down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now that is the really the, the most uh, difficult and objectionable thing that Jesus has said. Now he's identified the bread of life not just as kind of a symbol of life, like the manna was. Now he said that it is his very flesh that is the bread of life. Now, when we ask what he means by flesh, you really have to go back to the beginning of the Gospel of John. And, you know, every Bible, knowledgeable Bible Christian knows this. Where John tells us that in the beginning was the Word, the Logos, the Logos was with God, the Logos was God, and this Logos in chapter 1, verse 14, becomes flesh. The Logos becomes flesh. The second person of the Trinity becomes human. And his glory shines out through his humanity. That's what you see in the signs. That's what the signs are supposed to show. But the first people that you pointed out, Marcus, the crowds that were following Jesus... Why were they following? Well, Jesus told them in John chapter 6, you did it not because you saw a sign, but because your stomachs were filled, right? So now he's trying to lead them into seeing what the sign means. The sign means that he's the bread of life. But Jesus is just like good old Socrates. The more he teaches, the more questions you have. So what is the bread of life? Then he gives the answer, verse 51. It is my flesh. The same flesh that united the eternal word of God to his humanity. It's that flesh which he's going to give for the life of the world. Do you see? So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a progression also of raising questions. The question, who is this Jesus? We know him. He's just Joseph's kid. No, 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 no. He's more than that. He's the bread of life. Now, what follows after that 
are these bold statements by our Lord in verses yeah. 53 through 58 yeah. that the, the multitude, the Jewish leaders, most of his apostles, his disciples, could not stomach. They That's said right. these are hard words. Um, and at the end of verse 66, which ironically is John 6, 6, 6, <laughs> to make the connections with revelations. Yeah. Uh, you know, we have one of the saddest chapters of the Bible when uh, the majority of his followers turn from him because they they recognize that he is not speaking metaphorically. Uh, that yeah, what he right. is, they say he, he had every opportunity to say, no, well, well, no just wait a second. I, I'm just, uh, guys, I'm uh, I'm not talking literally here. Yeah. But he never does that. And well, as they reason, say in verse 60, look at verse 60, they say, when they heard the, the, of the disciples, they said, when the disciples heard this, they said, this is a, this is a hard saying. This is a difficult saying to swallow. Yep. It's a difficult pill to swallow. It really is. Um, you know, Mark, if I may just point out what you said there about verse 52. You notice I'm pointing out that in verse 51, they were, in verse, excuse me, verse 41, they were, it said that the Jews were grumbling. Now, the Greek word that's used in verse 52 means to have a fight. They were fighting now with one another. <laughs> and what was the fight over? How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So the objection that people today, be they good-minded, good-hearted Protestant Christians or outright atheists, who say, what well, this idea of eating the body and blood of Christ is absolute, uh, absolutely ridiculous. It's fantasy. It's, it's like science fiction or something. And you know what? They're right. <laughs> it is. It is utterly absurd to think that we could eat the flesh of the Son of Man. That's the beauty of it. It's, as Tertullian once said, I it, I believe it because it is absurd. It's beyond yep. human ability to understand it. And what does Jesus do? As you said, he could have then backpedaled at that point. Oh, wait a minute, guys. You're, you're taking this a little, little too childishly, a little too literally. Especially, especially when he's, I mean, I think about politicians today uh, when they say something they wish they hadn't. And, yeah, they, right. and all of a sudden, all their voters and their supporters and their donors are running the other way, and they immediately backpedal and come up with some other explanation, even when what they said was so obviously absurd. But they have to come up with some spin to get back their their voters. Because, they they got to exactly. get their crowd back. Yeah. Jesus doesn't do yeah. that at all. <laughs> well, Jesus, Jesus loves, but he is not worried about the, the popular vote. Uh, he goes on in verse 52, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life within you, now, in yourselves. Now, that word life is John's short, abbreviated way of saying eternal life. So he's talking about eternal life here. And, and how? what does that mean? Well, let's go to John chapter 17, verse 3. What does he say? This is eternal life. To know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So this knowledge, this intimate relationship with God, that comes through the Eucharist. And history has confirmed that over and over and over again. That people that are dedicated to the Eucharist, 
receiving the Eucharist regularly, they're people that are growing in this eternal knowledge or this knowledge of the eternal God. Jesus really punches it home at this point. Okay, let me ask you then. I'm a, the verses that we're talking about, I, you know, we're going to spend some time, we could spend a long time, you know, with the apologetic arguments uh, about the, the literalness of what he is saying in verses 53 through 58. Um, and let me read those in case those of you listening are not familiar because, you know, there's a wonderful hymn, you know, I am the bread of life. And uh, where it is the words of this put to tune. Uh, but Jesus says, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As a living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not such as the Father's ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Now, Ken, we find ourselves today in the 21st century having to argue that Jesus was speaking literally or that he was talking about the Eucharistic eating and drinking of his body and blood, soul, and divinity. And we yeah. we have to do this because historically, as a result of first Berengarius in the, when was that, the 12th century or 11th century, yeah. mm -hmm. was really the first person in the history of the church to publicly, um, in a serious way, challenge what had always been the belief of Christians from the beginning in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, but then in the Reformation, we find this whole thing blown open. And I think what happened in the Reformation is that not only was this taken uh, more symbolically, not so much by Luther, but then by Melanchthon, by uh, uh, Zwingli, mm -hmm. but, what was, but there was a major shift in the way that we abide in Christ, the way that we experience his indwelling, is through our faith. That that's how we were intimate with, that's how we know him is through our faith. And that's how he comes into us is through our faith alone, through Luther. And that overturns what had always been assumed is that the way we are intimate with Christ is through the Eucharist. And I wish I had before me, Ken, some of the quotes from the early church fathers. But one quote that comes to mind, which I don't have in front of me, was by St. Hilary in one of his long discourses where he just oh, yes. un unapologetically says the way that we are intimate with Jesus is through the Eucharist, period. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I remember that quotation, uh, not word for word, but this is in his treatise on the Trinity. St. Hilary yep. of Poitiers was a 4th century bishop. He wrote this treatise on the Trinity against the Arians, and they were saying that the Father is in the Son— not by his nature, but by their wills. They willed to be together, rather than the fact that they are in the nature that they shared. And when St. Hilary is arguing, he's trying to prove the point that the relationship between the Father and the Son is not one of a decision of the will. It's one of their natures. Jesus has the, the, the eternal word, the second person of the Trinity, 
has the very nature, the same nature as the Father. But in order to argue this, he says this, who would deny that Christ is in us by his nature in the Eucharist? Do you see? And then if that's true, then who could deny that Jesus is in the Father by virtue of his nature? So he's making a parallel between, but what that shows about his belief about the Eucharist is very clear that he believes that Jesus is dwelling in us by his nature. When you talked about faith being the, uh, John chapter 6 being about faith, that's kind of a, that's a way in which people uh, try to make it more subjective, right? Rather than an objective presence that uh, that is there. That faith that depends upon us, whether Jesus, well, it does to some degree in the sense that we receive him, but it's his objective presence, the presence of his nature that's in us through the Eucharist. I mean, it just shows what our cultures have done to us. That, That's true. Uh, in our non-Catholic cultures that you and I were, were brought up in and born in, in, in seminary training and in, in our preaching, hmm. is that we had um, narrowed down and at the same time watered down the intimacy we have with Christ by emphasizing to the one extreme that he is in me through my faith. He has come into me, and he's with me, he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own. He's with me all the time. There's no special place to be with our Lord. But on the other hand, when in my journey to become a Catholic, I discovered a longstanding tradition of Catholics that when they pass a, a church, they mm. cross themselves. Right. Why are they crossing themselves? Because they recognize that yeah, Corpus Christi, yeah is present in that that sanctuary, in that tabernacle, in a much real, more real way that was the presumed acceptance of Christianity since the beginning that doesn't belittle the fact that he dwells in our hearts, but he dwells in our hearts, as St. Hilary said, through his nature coming into us through the Eucharist. Well, I think it's St. Hilary's words are so are so powerfully conf, uh, confirmed by uh, verse 57, where it says, As uh, the Father, the living Father, sent me, and then he says, And I live because of the Father. He who eats me will live, why? Because of me. In other words, will have eternal life precisely because in the same way that the son and the father this father the son gets his life his his life of his a person as a divine person because the father is the source of the trinity so in our life it's through eating the eucharist eating the body and blood of christ that we actually have this eternal life within us um just a it might be um a little comical uh uh, parentheses here, but uh, you know there used to be a law in the Middle Ages that you couldn't bring your horse into church, oh. and uh, the reason that they did that because these noblemen would go from church to church, and they would watch the priest elevating the host. Well, you talked about a culture, on the one hand, in which is a very sacramental culture; it's a very Eucharistic culture, versus a culture that's very. Um, shall we say, symbolically flat. Uh, It has no depth to it at all. And that's the contrast between that. Well, you never need to make a, in in Protestant America, you never need to to have such a law because 
the Eucharist wasn't understood that well. And unfortunately, um, the surveys show us, sadly, that many of our fellow Catholics throughout the United States do not understand the Eucharist and what it means. And I think the reason is because they've largely adopted a secular mindset that's out there in the world where there's no such thing as metaphysical depth that we're talking about. So when we're talking about Christ being us in the Eucharist, we're not talking about uh, a kind of a crass physicalism. We're talking about a metaphysical reality in which through the appearances of bread and wine, the metaphysical reality of Christ's divinity and his humanity are communicated to our souls. And it becomes the sweetest thing that we've ever had. The verse that jumps out at me in this section, um, I mean, one verse that I've, I've, was important to me in my own journey was verse 56, because in John 15, um, where our Lord, the familiar passage of the, now I'm, I'm the vine, you are the branches, in that whole context, he talks about the necessity of remaining in him, continuing in Christ, abiding in Christ in verse Fifteen four, you know, unless he talks about this abiding and the necessity of it, um, and if you don't abide in Christ, you're cast off like a branch uh, into the fire. So the necessity, and I, I remember as a non-Catholic pastor, often in my Calvinism, struggling with John fifteen. You know, if you've accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you believe that once you've accepted Him and, and now you're a part of Him and you're saved and um, and there's nothing you do to win that salvation, and therefore there's nothing you do to lose it, well, then what's this issue of abiding in him? Why do I have to abide in Christ uh, if I can't lose my salvation? So I struggle with that passage anyway, given my past theology. But what struck me was that verse 56 is the only place in Scripture where our Lord directly talks about what it means to abide in him in which he said, Mm -hmm. he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And if you combine that with all the other passages about abiding that you find not only in the book of John, but in the letters of John, we see that it's through our Eucharistic partaking of our Lord, our union which we have, which empowers us to be obedient, which empowers us to love, which empowers us to break from sin, which empowers us to be united with him. All these ideas of abiding in Christ all trace their meaning back to this section, which says that it has to do with accepting Christ at his word and therefore receiving him in the Eucharist. Well, that's the beauty of the of the doctrine of the Eucharist, which is uh, so rich that you a child can say, the child, the little child says, well, well, Daddy, why should I believe in that 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 the Eucharist uh, in Mass on Sunday is the body and blood of Christ and say, because Jesus is God and he said it. You can tell the child that, all right? But you can also go deeply into the mystery of the fact that here is divinity hidden under humanity. We can talk about transubstantiation and the, the change of the substance of the bread and the wine into the substance of the body of Christ, which requires a, a un, deep understanding of metaphysics. So you see, both a simple level and at a very complex and, and learned level, the Eucharist still is the same thing. It's all about 
loving and receiving Jesus Christ. Because as he said in that John 15 passage that you quoted, Marcus, without me, you can do nothing. So we're completely dependent upon him for anything that is good, anything that is fruitful. I was going to say that affirms the beauty uh, that I'm a bit envious of. of uh, from the beginning, the church has always emphasized that parents are the primary educators of their children. And so the beauty of lifelong Catholics that have been brought up in a solid Catholic home, that they know from infancy the reality of our Lord in the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. Whereas as an older believer came into the Catholic Church after he's 40, uh, I know well the statement that Peter says when he says, um, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We, we just have to take Jesus at his word. Or that Father in Scripture that says, I believe, now help my unbelief. You know, yeah. the, the constant mm-hmm. growing and recognizing as an adult of all the scientific and other questions about, you know, substance and accidents and all these philosophical ways of understanding, you know, that Jesus is truly present there, although my eyes and taste buds only recognize the accidents of wheat, uh, but yet in the mystery, he is very much present there. And Ken, oh, mm-hmm. we're running out of time. I want to end, if I could, and draw to you, Ken, verse 53, when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless, unless. Mm-hmm. St. Thomas took from that the necessity of belief in the Eucharist for salvation. Mm-hmm. And, the, and there is the ground of the historical understanding of salvation in the church, because it's in the church that you receive the Eucharist, the necessity exactly. of, I mean, talk about the, the necessity of yeah. that in our last minute. You know? Well, exactly. In, in other words, there's this, the necessity of the Eucharist is the necessity of its substance, right? And that is Jesus Christ. I mean, you pointed to St. Thomas. The reason that St. Thomas Aquinas said this is what he said later in, in the Corpus Christi, no one can sufficiently express the sweetness of this sacrament through which spiritual delight is tasted at its very source. And that source is Christ in his passion as it expresses his most infinite love for us. Thank you, Ken. It's a pleasure joining you on this Good program again. And all of you for joining us again. Go to deepinscripture.com. Send us your emails. And uh, in this Corpus Christi, uh, celebrate what our Lord has done for us on that cross, his body and blood for our salvation. God bless you. See you next week.